There is going to be fulfilled one day a great and glorious future for Israel, God's chosen people, the apple of his eye. And uh, one day we'll see the millennial kingdom established, uh, uh, ruled over by the Jewish Messiah, who is, of course, the savior of the world. Uh, but he's first and foremost, uh, even as he came in his mission, first and foremost to the lost uh, children of the house of Israel. Uh, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, one day that kingdom will be established. Um, and there are great uh, promises of this throughout the Old Testament. Matter of fact, one of them I'll just start with uh, kicking us off today is in Ezekiel 37. I'll just start in verse um, 19. Uh, Say to them, thus says the Lord, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim uh, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it. And the stick of Judah and make them, uh, with the stick of Judah and make them one stick and they shall be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. And then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Now there is of course a fulfilling of this that took place in 1948. But even still, one day there is going to be the bringing together of the children of Israel uh, at the very, very end. We see that begin to take form here as the prophecy continues. And I will make them one nation in the land, uh, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they uh, ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. And they shall then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish uh, them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, this is spoken by Ezekiel, who is an exilic prophet in Babylon. He's somebody who, along with Daniel, uh, is a prophet to the people of God, the southern two tribes of Judah. And here in this prophecy, among other things, he talks about a few things. He talks about the idea that the southern tribes of Judah and the northern tribes of Israel, or Ephraim as they're called here, will be brought back together and will be one in the hand of the Lord, and they will be in the land together, dwelling once again. This, of course, is a tremendous message of hope to them as they're in exile. Um, but <clears throat> there's also mention about the idea of the tabernacle of the Lord being established in their midst. Now, that is, on the one hand, that does take place um, in um, uh, the temple that is built under the time of Haggai and Zechariah, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and such. But there's mention of a tabernacle being in their midst forevermore. And so this prophecy goes beyond just the return to the land uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah. And actually, there is mention of a covenant made with them forever, an everlasting covenant. Uh, they'll be cleansed, all of this. This is clearly future-looking because there's not a temple there now, which means the previous one that had been built under, uh, again, uh, during the time of Haggai and Zechariah, Ezra and Nehemiah, 
Um, that temple, which then was built upon by Herod, was eventually destroyed in 70 AD under Titus Vespasian. And so that's clearly not the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. There's in fact a future temple that is yet coming. Uh, there's also mention of Israel being multiplied in the land and that kind of thing. And so that's, that's another telling thing about how things will be when that final kingdom is established, the millennial kingdom. This is what Ezekiel has in view here in chapter 37, ultimately, as we get toward the end of it. There's also mention of David ruling over them. Uh, now that can be taken one of two ways. It can be um, taken as being uh, symbolic of the Messiah, the son of David, uh, ruling on the throne of his father, David. That could be a reference to that, or it could be taken even more literally, and this is where I tend to land on this, is that David will have a prominent place in the millennial kingdom alongside of Messiah, uh, as he is the king by which all other kings in Israel are measured, even in spite of his uh, uh, horrible sin. Uh, he still is, the, is, is sort of the gold standard among uh, the kings in Israel. And so uh, it is very probable, I think, that David actually will sit alongside of Messiah and have a place of prominence in the millennial kingdom. Um, uh, now, I, I sort of lay all this out because this is really going to be the response to a question that was asked by Jeff. Uh, Pastor, a quick question. I thought I recalled that some biblical expositors believed that in the tribulation, approximately one-third of Israelis would believe in Jesus. Do you know if this is believed to be the case? Jeff, that's a great question, Jeff, and I wanted to kind of lay out that sort of um, uh, runway here to answering that question because I wanted to make sure we understand that God is not done with Israel by any means. Uh, there is a, a tremendous amount of uh, disbelief of this, even within the body of Christ. A, a group of people, a, a body of Christ, the body of Messiah, right? The body of Yeshua, who should, uh, of, of anybody, should be expecting uh, God to fulfill his promises to Israel. Not just spiritual Israel in terms of those who, like Gentiles, come by faith later, but even national ethnic Israel. Uh, when Jesus told uh, his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in Matthew 6.10, uh, this was spoken to the Jews to be praying for their kingdom to be established. This is something they were physically waiting for. And Jesus encouraged that kind of fervor. Uh, when they asked him about the establishing of the kingdom after his resurrection, Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons or the days or the hours, I should say. Or, how did he put that in Acts 1? Uh, it's not for you to know these things as of yet, but go into Jerusalem and wait until you're endued with power from on high. Never discouraging them to be looking for that to happen, but just basically telling them it's not just yet. Uh, so the idea of the coming kingdom is one that is uh, that runs as a thread throughout Scripture, really. From the time of Abraham on, there is this idea that there's going to be this establishing of a nation that will be God's focal piece on the earth, uh, up to and including a time of establishing a kingdom. And so this is an important part of theology and Israelology uh, and our understanding of how that fits together in Scripture. Uh, now, there, now, in regard to the question Jeff asks about a third of Israel coming to belief during the time of the tribulation, uh, there is a passage that very uh, directly speaks to this, and it's in Zechariah chapter 13. Um, I'm going to invite you to turn there. Uh, of course, my, my hope is that you always have your Bible ready to go. But here in um, Ze uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 13, um, I'll just read from verse 7 uh, through 9, and uh, um, you can continue to read verse chapter 14 and the day of the Lord and all these things. But here in verse 7 of chapter 13, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds of it shall be cut off, 
and die, but one-third shall be left in it, and I will bring one-third through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. Then they will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, This is my people, and each one will say, The Lord is my God. Now, uh, many scholars, including, uh, I'm not a scholar, but I would agree with those scholars. <laughs> I'm not a scholar. Uh, would, I would agree with those that hold that this is actually speaking of the time of tribulation, where Israel is refined and brought through that furnace, uh, as it were, of tribulation, and one-third makes it through. Uh, now, there is a passage in Revelation that I think also refers to the period of time that Zechariah is speaking to, and that's in Revelation chapter 12. So you want to turn there as well. And uh, by the way, if you're a note-taker, uh, or if you're not a note-taker in your Bible, if you don't uh, like to underline passages and write cross-references in your Bible, let me encourage you to start, because you want to be able to kind of go back and forth in these passages and sort of create your own sort of chain of being able to follow these ideas through the Scripture. Uh, I am uh, a big advocate for writing, highlighting, uh, all that kind of stuff. It's uh, These are not original manuscripts on your desk here or on my desk right now, so you can feel free to to, to mark it up and, and write notes and, and all that kind of stuff, and even prayers that uh, maybe come to mind as you're reading a passage. Uh, it's good to have this in your Bible. Matter of fact, one day maybe your kids will inherit this Bible from you, and they'll really get a lot out of uh, what they saw you uh, thinking about and writing about in your Bible. But anyway, I digress. Um, so in chapter 12 of Revelation, we're in the midst of the seven-year period uh, known as Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation period. And chapter 12 brings us right up to the beginning of what is called the Great Tribulation. This is where uh, the Antichrist, who has been now in power and authority in, in world government and economics and, and, uh, and such, will now begin to also become uh, the leader of the world, even in terms of religion, as the false prophet arises in chapter 13, an image is built, the mark of the beast, all those kinds of things take place uh, uh, as, as chapter 12 continues to unfold into chapter 13. Uh, the kings of the earth begin to give him their power and all these kinds of things as the, as the uh, uh, account continues to unfold through the following chapters. Well, in chapter 12, uh, we have a marked turn of events. This is where uh, Antichrist ultimately now begins to persecute Israel. Israel realizes that this is not, in fact, their Messiah, who they had embraced previously, for for what could be any number of reasons uh, that that uh, you know uh, could be at that time. Not the least of which may have to do with them building their temple. Daniel chapter nine verse twenty seven talks about how uh, he confirms a covenant with the many. And then he causes offerings and sacrifices to cease in the midst of that seven-year covenant, right in the three-and-a-half-year mark. Uh, he violates the covenant. Uh, Paul references this in Second Thessalonians 2 as well. Um, but the idea of, of him confirming a covenant and then um, uh, violating that covenant midway through uh, has led many to believe, and I think it's a reasonable possibility, has led many to believe that this covenant will include um, providing the way for um, for Israel to build their temple again. And so uh, that may be the case. It doesn't say that for sure in the passage, but it, it, it may be what's in view. So anyway, uh, the temple is built, offerings and sacrifices are going on. The Antichrist has brought about peace in the Middle East, uh, at least some a, a, a seeming peace for a period of time. Uh, um, it, it may very well be that uh, having allowed them to build their temple, it may be standing right next to the Dome of the Rock. He may be a monumental figure in bringing about what the world sees as world peace. But of course, uh, he is on the scene because Christ has broken the first seal in chapter 6 and has unleashed the Antichrist on the world. And he comes seemingly peacefully um, uh, 
taking, you know, charge of things in the world, rising to power and such. But here in chapter 12, again, we see a market change. Uh, here we see a turn of events where now the great tribulation begins. Chapter 12 uh, begins with, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, we don't have to wonder who's in view here. Uh, this is a, this is the very same imagery that Joseph uh, sees in, in a dream that he's given back in Genesis chapter 37. Uh, as he unfolds this dream, which is of this same image, uh, and he tells his father, Jacob, about it. Jacob actually interprets the dream in a sense. He says uh, about the sun, the moon, and the stars. He says, will your mother, and who all bow down to his star, Joseph's star, uh, uh, Jacob says, will your, will your mother and I and your brothers all bow down to you? And so we recognize that the imagery is intended to convey the idea of Jacob or Israel. And so here in Revelation, the end of the book always interprets the rest of the Bible. The, uh, everything that begins in, in throughout the rest of Scripture finds its consummation here in the book of Revelation. Well, we see this imagery once again in chapter 12, and it is the sun, moon, and stars. And this, of course, is intended to convey to us that Israel is in mind. Uh, Israel uh, is in mind, not the church uh, or anything like that. Um, there's a consistency about the way imagery is used throughout Scripture. Not that there are never any exceptions, but really there's a consistency throughout. This particular image, I think, is very clearly intended to convey that Israel is in view, which makes sense, by the way, uh, because Israel is in view throughout chapters uh, 6 through uh, 19, 11, and really all the way through the Millennial Kingdom, really. But Israel is the focal point and, 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 um, um, you know, of, of really what's happening here. It's, it's after all Daniel's 70th week. This is a prophecy that was given to Daniel about his people and his holy city. So this period of time is dealing specifically with Israel, not the church or anything else. Uh, well, not or anything else. I mean, the world is in view. There's, uh, Gentiles in view, all that kind of thing, but it's not the church. Uh, it's Israel that's in view. So in chapter one, uh, 12, verse one again, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now we see this image show up again in chapter 13. Um, but his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child uh, as soon as it was born. Um, uh, uh, here we go, uh, verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there for 1,260 days, or three and a half years. In other words, chapter 12 happens at the midway point of the tribulation. Israel is chased off into the wilderness by the Antichrist, who is empowered by Satan himself, uh, with these heads and horns and diadems and such. These, again, we'll see this imagery unfold further here as the chapters go on. And also in Daniel chapter 7, by the way, we see some of this as well, in helping us understand what's in view. In short, what's in view is the Antichrist with the nations that have given him their power. Uh, he has authority over these nations now, and he ultimately now, uh, with that authority, begins to persecute Israel on a level that uh, had previously never been seen. And this is where we connect it with Zechariah chapter 13. If, in fact, this is speaking of the same time, and I think it is. Uh, I say if because maybe it's not, but it, to me it really seems very clear that it is. 
uh, speaking of the same period of time and even the same event. During this time of great tribulation, Israel is brought through this period of fire. One third of her survives and enters into the kingdom. Um, but two thirds of her are ultimately killed as a result of what I believe is being described here in chapter 12, where uh, the Antichrist and really Satan is, is seeking to uh, to destroy Israel. Uh, and, and, and in regard to two-thirds, succeeds. However, one-third does make it through. They're protected in this place where they're fed and, and, and taken care of for, again, three and a half years, as it says in verse 6. Um, now, there is a, a passage that I would like to turn to here as well that helps us kind of get a sense of, uh, of things as well. This is in Romans chapter 11, where uh, Paul makes a very bold statement here. Um, uh, let me start in verse 25. Uh, and by the way, Romans chapter 11, God is, uh, well, the Holy Spirit through Paul is talking about um, the idea of our having been grafted onto the vine. Uh, there is a lot of discussion throughout chapters 9 and through 12, uh, 9 through 11, having to do with the sovereignty of God, but it is in the framework of Israel being in view. And so uh, we don't want to lose sight of Israel in this discussion of the sovereignty of God and his choosing Jacob over Esau and such. Um, but we want to make sure that we recognize that God is talking about his faithfulness and his covenant faithfulness with Israel. Now, in chapter 9, there's mention of how not all Israel are Israel. In other words, those who are Israel in the flesh are not saved just because they are ethnically of Abraham's seed. Because after all, through Isaac, your seed shall be blessed, right? So it's through the promise, Paul is saying. And so those who come by faith are also counted as, quote-unquote, spiritual Israel. However, a mistake is often made among um, replacement uh, uh, people who uh, embrace the idea of replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. That is wrong. That's pernicious. That is not true. That is absolutely a, a lie from the pit of hell. That is incorrect on every level. Um, Israel has not been cast off, but Paul is saying that just because somebody is ethnically Jewish doesn't mean that they're right with God or that they're going to inherit that kingdom. Rather, instead, those who've put their trust in Messiah, they are full, truly full Israelites. Now, you and I as Gentiles are grafted into that, but we're not the vine. As a matter of fact, almost in anticipation of replacement theology, uh, matter of fact, I would say it is in anticipation of replacement theology, Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says these words in, um, um, here we go, let me just start in verse um, uh, 20. Um, or verse 19, you will say then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Remember, he's saying, he's saying this to a Gentile church in Rome. Okay. He's saying, you will say then branches were broken off or Israel was sort of set aside that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And then they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness has, uh, has happened to Israel, in part has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in." 
Now, I think this is a reference to the rapture. In other words, when the last of the Gentiles or the last of the church age ultimately come to faith, they will be raptured away and Israel's blindness will be lifted and God will once again begin to work through Israel. This brings us to about the point of Daniel's 70th week, I think. And so verse 26, here it is. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, For those who would say, well, yeah, all Israel includes the Gentiles in that. Well, verse 27, Paul is here quoting from the Old Testament when he talks about the idea that the liver is coming out of Zion for his people, Jacob. This is his covenant with them. Okay, it's very clear that Paul has Israel in mind, national, ethnic, and now believing Israel. And so those who are in disbelief, or two-thirds of Israel, if if that's what Zechariah is saying, uh, will not make it through the tribulation. But one-third, or believing Israel, those who Paul would be referring to here in Romans 11, will enter the uh, uh, will enter the millennial kingdom at the end. Um, They will put their trust in Jesus. Uh, That doesn't mean that Jews won't come to Jesus before that. Many do today. But in specific, this is referring to that period of time and those who will come through and ultimately enter into the millennium. So I do hope that answers the question. Um, And uh, I hope uh, moving around to some of these passages gives you some places to check out, some food for thought, some things to consider. But Jeff, I really appreciate the question. Thanks, bro, for that. And um, and uh, I appreciate you all watching and listening. So um, uh, again, I hope you find this helpful. If you have any questions or thoughts, you're welcome to share them on our YouTube channel in the comments section. Uh, this uh, I look through these uh, comments. I don't get a chance to answer all of them. I try to at least acknowledge uh, most, if not all of them. Uh, but I do get a lot of questions that come in through there that we end up answering on the podcast. And then uh, also you can email me at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com, as Jeff did. And uh, uh, we'll try and answer your questions there as well. So thank you so much again for that. And thanks for your other questions that have come in uh, as well. So, um, But Father, we thank you. We thank you for your purposes and plans. We thank you that you're faithful. We thank you that that faithfulness uh, is shown in the face of your chosen people the apple of your eye, whom you are not finished with, but one day will ultimately um, will bring that remnant through the tribulation period, and they will see the kingdom, and they will inherit the promises, and they will see Messiah Jesus. Father, we're very thankful for this, and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem today. We would pray, Lord, for those who, uh, among them, who will in fact come to faith and believe, both now and in the period of time of the tribulation. Uh, for us, Lord, as the church, for those who are uh, believers in this era, Father, help us not to forsake your people. We don't, uh, obviously, we know that they don't obviously do everything right, and they're walking in unbelief even right now, but uh, they do remain your chosen people. So we want to, uh, along with what you told Abraham, we want to bless those uh, uh, whom you've chosen, Father, and rather not curse them. Uh, so, Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you're doing and all that you will do. We, too, are looking very much forward to the establishing of that kingdom. So thank you, Lord. Indeed, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. We'll catch up with you next time.